0: Let's turn John together. This week we're in John 18. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Four gospel accounts, as I like to say, but one gospel, his name is Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John chapter 18, large letters, large numbers, chapter, small numbers are the verses. Chapter 18. We'll pick up at verse 12 where we left off last week. Hear the word of the Lord. Chapter 18, verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Verse 15, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door, so the other disciple who was known with the high priest went out, spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door, and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. They were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus answered, verse 20, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said those things, one of the officers stood by and struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is this how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing by, verse 25, was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you you also are not one of the disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One One of the servants of the high priest... A relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once, a rooster crowed. Oof, may God have a blessing through so the reading of his holy word this morning. Keep your Bibles open to John 18. Children, you're dismissed for Children's Church. And we are in John 18 together. John 18, we come to the place of this unlawful arrest, trial, and denial of a truly innocent man. The man to whom Isaiah said he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Scripture teaches us that Jesus lived an obedient life, his enemies could not find one fault. His friends could not find one sin. Even his siblings, half-siblings, could not find one fault in him. If there's anyone who knows about our sins, it's our siblings. Not one was found in Jesus. Fully God, fully man. He's now on trial, beginning trial, for a crime he did not commit. He'll be handed over to Herod, to Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. But this, Acts chapter 4 The prayer tells us what this is all about. It says to do whatever your hand, as the prayer goes out, Lord, you're in charge, that they were handed over to them to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Acts chapter 4, verse 26. That prayer recognizes, as they look back to the cross, that God is in control, even in this dark and ugly place. God is in control. Acts chapter 2. The apostles preaching. He says, This Jesus has been delivered up. He's been bound. He's been delivered up to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You, he's talking to the people who crucified him, you crucified him and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So family, I mention that because as we get into this dark text, as we get into this change of events, God is in control. God is in control and His sovereign redemptive plan. He will take the most ugliest and most heinous sin this world has ever committed and weave it into the most beautiful display of His glory and His grace. The crucifixion. The resurrection god is not asleep in your pain god is not asleep in your trouble god is working for his glory and for your good if he could take this most heinous crime of crucifixion of the perfect spotless son of god and display his glory he is working in your life last week we saw how jesus ministry to his disciples came to a close I would imagine after several hours they were sharing the Passover meal together. It began in chapter 13 of John, goes all the way to the high priestly prayer in chapter 17. And that ends, of course, with, at the end of chapter 17, Jesus praying to the Father. And at that point, the story turns. Judas, who had gone out earlier in chapter 13 into the night, he went and got a band of soldiers made up of Roman army, temple police, Jewish religious leaders, and others, and led them to the Garden of Gethsemane. It was there that Jesus had gone several times. It was a regular place for him to go. And Judas the traitor knew that, and so did Jesus. But the hour had come. The hour had come that he would finish the work the Father had given to do and go to the cross. The hour had come to glorify the Father. The flawless justice and the perfect love of God displayed on the cross. The flawless justice, sin must be paid for, and the perfect love of God displayed on the hill called Golgotha. And and I said this last week, I'm going to say it again. Although Jesus is in a very dark place, a very hard place, John wants us to see, John wants us to see that Jesus... He's not a coward. He's not a failure. He is the omnipotent king who is in full control of all the events that are taking place. Chapter 18, verse 4. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, came forward. Remember that from last week. And when Jesus came forward, they asked him... Who are you looking for? He said. He said to them, Who are you looking for? And Jesus says, I am. We talked about that last week. That's ego and me. It is the same name that God used for himself to display his glory to Moses in the bush. When, when Moses came to him and said, who, who should I say, send me? You want me to go to Pharaoh? Who are you? He said, I am. Jesus takes that name to display his self, his, his unique identity, his divine identity. And when he speaks it, look at verse 6, they drew back and fell to the ground. Bam. But even with that display of power and majesty, verse 10 tells us Peter drew his sword and cut off the right ear of Malchus, a slave to one of the high priests. Now, in defense of Peter, we're going to talk about Peter a lot today. In defense of Peter, at least he was going with a fight. He's like, you, you want to take us? You know, we're, 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 we're gonna, you're going to take us with a fight. There's was probably three. I don't, people don't know how many soldiers were there, but I'm going to say a couple of hundred at least. And I don't think Peter was aiming for his ear. Just saying. <laughs> I mean, like, stay still. Let me get your ear. Like, I don't think so. I think he was going for something more like his head, and he got his ear. The kid, you know, had a little move on him, got caught in the ear. Dr. Luke... Matthew, Mark, Luke, one of the gospel writers, who's a doctor, picks up the story and says that Jesus healed the man. He's a doctor. He thought that was pretty cool, I'm sure. Some people say he healed him by picking up his ear off the floor in like a Mike Tyson way, you know, and just put the ear back on him. Some commentators say, you know, he just just grew the ear. I mean, either way, it's just a miracle takes place. It's a miracle just in, in front of everyone. So you have this vast army coming to attempt attempt to arrest Jesus, which they will do. He says, I am, in a display of of, of glory, a, a glimpse of his glory. They fall backwards. Peter cuts the guy's ear off. He heals them. And what does everyone do? Starts breaking out into song and singing, worthy, worthy are you. No, they bind him. They arrest him anyway. Gotta be thinking, what are, they, what, are they, what are they possibly thinking to arrest him at that moment? And then bind him, cuff him. As if he's a magician, he's got something up to sleep. Get that guy, put his hands behind his back. You never know what next is gonna happen next, right? So that's where we pick up the story. He had cut off the ear, he had healed him, and now they take him and they bind him. That's where we pick it up. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna see this in four acts, four scenes. John, in his account, does it a little bit differently than the other gospel writers. So what he, what he does is he talks about Jesus being bound and delivered to Annas, and then he skips the story and he goes to part of Peter's denial. Then he goes back to the interrogation with Annas, and then he ends with Peter's denial. So that's the outline. That's the best I could do. Delivered to Annas, denied by Peter, and then there's, that, that's, and then there's the uh, other, other acts or the other scenes. Okay, Delivered to Annas, interrogation. And then denied by Peter and the fulfillment. I'll explain it as we go. Look at number one with me. Delivered to Annas, verse 12. So, the band of soldiers and their captain. Now, that word captain in the Greek, uh, it means he's the captain of a thousand. That's where that word comes from. So, most scholars think he's either either had a thousand men under him or at least six or seven hundred men. Now, I don't think everybody was there, but this is a general. This is this is a, a top guy. This guy is 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 a is a military uh, professional. He comes with the officers of the Jews, temple police. They arrest Jesus and bind him. Verse thirteen. First, after they bound him, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Okay. Now let me let me just. Let me just give you, there's going to be a lot of information, unfortunately, today, but it's just some historical facts you need to know. The first thing I want you to know is, when you read the four gospel accounts, you will read that Jesus and this trial, this this illegal trial that took place, took place under two main headings. Jesus was under trial with, first, the Jewish authorities, and secondly, under the Roman civil authorities. So there's two trials going on at the same time. Roman... And Jewish. Under both those trials, as you read the gospel accounts, both of those trials, they have three pieces to each one. So in other words, Jesus is bound and brought before the Jewish authorities, and then he is brought before Annas, Caiaphas, and the Sanhedrin. Annas we see here. The only place of the the four gospel accounts, only John mentions Annas. Then there's Caiaphas high priest, and then there's the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the highest ranking judicial, religious body of all of Israel. It's like our three branches put together. And Jesus is brought before them. You can read that in Matthew 26 and Matthew 27 where they declare him guilty of blasphemy. Three phases, Jewish trial. In 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 the Roman trial, it's the same thing. There are three phases. He's brought to Pilate, which we'll see next week. Then Pilate gets tired of him, and sends him to Herod, and then Herod sends him back to Pilate, and then he says, who do you want me to release? And they say, Barabbas, crucify Jesus. So as you're reading the gospel account, you need to know that. Different, different gospel writers are given different pieces of what take place. You can put them all together, and you see the fullness of it. We're not going to be able to do that, but I just wanted you to know that that's what happened, because in the Jewish, in the Jewish um, court system, they didn't, they didn't practice uh, murder, but, you know, uh, capital punishment. Acts chapter 7, Stephen is stoned. John 10, they try to stone Jesus. But it's, it's not very common because the Romans had given that, they had taken that responsibility on themselves. So if somebody was found guilty of a crime, deserving capital punishment, Rome had to okay it. That's why you see Rome, that's why you see at the end, it's Pilate who makes the decision, crucify him. And that's what the Jewish people wanted—Jesus to to, to die and to be get, you know, so they get rid of him. So it ends in the Roman court system. So you need to see that as well. Um, So Annas, this this first preliminary hearing is before Annas. We pick that up in John chapter twelve, verse uh, thirteen. Now, who's Annas? It's very important. You know who Annas is. Again, it's a historical sermon. I'm sorry, but you need to know. Because Annas is a very important figure. Annas used to be high priest back in 6 AD until 15 AD. So we're somewhere at 30, 33 AD here at this point. 35 even AD. So he's been high priest. So now it's 15, 16, 18. I don't know exactly how many years later. So he's an elderly man. He's an older gentleman. He wields a lot of power and he was a man of great wealth. The high priest in those days, as you know, Jesus was not happy with, this, with the whole priestly system when he walked into the temple and he seen them, what, selling, selling animals and he turned their, the temple into a, a, a place of, of, of mockery and he turned flipped tables, you remember, he drove people out with whips because they would take the animals that people brought from afar and they would exchange them, exchange money and they were extorting people, all for the pockets of the priest's. This man's a high priest, and he's like the father of the high priests. He, he is a patriarch high priest. He has five sons, and one son-in-law, which we see here, Caiaphas, they were all high priests under him. Or at least at one point, each one of them were priests. So he's, he's the patriarch. He's the man. He's the elderly man. He has a whole lot of priests in his family, and is the patriarch of the high priests. He would call what we would call maybe emeritus priests. Um, he, in those days when you became a high priest, you became a high priest, it's a lifetime uh, a thing. But they would still call you high priest even though you were not the official high priest of that year. Sort of the same thing when, when you see interviews, uh, you can't turn the TV on without seeing political interviews, um, and they call the Speaker of the House, even though he's not the Speaker of House, Gingrich say, and they call him Speaker of the House, or, or a governor, a or Huckabee, or, or any other governor, they'll, they'll say something, they'll call him governor, he used to be the governor or the president, whether was Obama or Bush, president. Same thing here. Annas is not the official high priest, but they still call him high priest. And if you don't know that and you look at your Bibles and you see in verse 24, Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest, and then go look at verse 19. The high priest then questioned him. You're like, well, wait a minute. Which one is it? It's both. Annas is considered the high priest because he was one and he's the patriarch of the high priest and Caiaphas was actually the high priest that year. So I don't want you to be confused. That makes sense? I hope so because it took me a long time to figure that out myself. No. <laughs> so he's before Annas. He's the first guy he shows, you know, the first one that he's brought to, kind of the grand bubab high priest. And then John... And you've got to ask yourself this question, especially when you're reading John. He throws stuff in there that's supposed to stop you. you go, all right, well, why did you say that? Look with me to verse 14. This is what stuck out when I was reading this passage. He's talking about Anna. He's talking about the high priest. He's talking about being bound and being brought in. All of a sudden, he just throws in verse 14. It was Caiaphas, that's the high priest that year, technically, who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Well, that statement goes back to chapter 11. Jesus had brought forth Lazarus from the grave, raised him from the dead after being four days in the grave, and it says that the Jews who were with Mary and Martha all got together, and a lot of them believed on Christ. But a bunch of them also did not believe on Christ and ran to the Pharisees and say, Hey, man, this guy is up to... You to should see what's going on with this guy named Jesus. And in John chapter 11, verse 47, it says... The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council together, that's the Sanhedrin, and said, what are we going to do with this guy? For this man performs many signs. There was no doubt what Jesus did. There never was. The question was, who is this man? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone's going to believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Our money is what they want to say. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, technically that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, John says, but because he was high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. That's John eleven fifty two. 52. Caiaphas did not understand what he was saying, it says. But because he was high priest, he prophesied. And I think John put that in there at this moment. As Jesus is getting ready to be handed over, to, as he's just being handed over and being ready to go to the cross to remind us to stay on track. That Jesus Christ, even in this dark hour, is majestic and the majestic king and in his majesty and in his glory and in his sovereignty he will be our substitute that's what that's about That's what that's about. It's a substitute. The word for, the preposition for, is sacrificial language. And what the high priest is saying is, let's kill Jesus so that the Romans won't kill us. Let's substitute him for us. That's what Christianity is all about. Substitute. He died in our place and for our sins. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all, uh, Isaiah tells us. Calvin writes this, Caiaphas, therefore, might be said at the time to have two tongues. One he committed, well, for he vomited out the wicked and cruel design of putting Christ to death, which was convinced in his mind, but God turned his tongue to a different purpose so that under ambiguous words, he likewise uttered a prediction. With the same voice, Caiaphas blasphemes and also prophesies, end quote. You see, in the mind of Caiaphas, the substitute was this. Let's kill one man, Jesus, and therefore we can survive the Romans and they won't squash us, even though 70 AD they will. But in the mind and the eternal plans and purposes of God, it is I will put my son to death so that you can live. God substitute Jesus for his enemies Again, the death of King Jesus was not a mistake. This is not a bad turn of events as some historians would like to tell you. Jesus is in full control. This is the work of a grand plan, the loving work of a grand plan designed and played out from all eternity to bring God glory and for the good and salvation of his people. Yes, played out by sinful man, but God himself was issuing the death warrant. This is not just a prophecy. This is not just a prophecy of God. It was implemented. It was executed. It was accomplished by God himself. And the purpose of John's perspective in this narrative is to show us that in the final hours that Jesus is in utter control from the upper room to the cross even though we see this ungodly man prophesying the truth about the substitutionary work of Christ. Now look at Peter. Peter. Peter's denial, you can read about it in other gospel accounts as well, and there are different nuances, and again, historically, I just want to tell you, when you read, and I hope you do, this this Easter season, I hope you get your Bible out, I hope you're reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're reading the last few days of Jesus' life, his Passion Week, you're being reminded of all what Christ has done for us, I hope you do that. But when you read in that story, and there seems to be, first read, a, a, a contradiction or something that doesn't make sense, Whenever you come across that, think, all right, I'm not reading this right, because the Bible doesn't contradict itself. Here's what happens if you read the accounts. Peter is in the courtroom, in in a courtyard, excuse me. Peter is having a discussion with the servant girl, another servant, and the men at the fire here, at the charcoal fire. One gospel account one writer of the gospel account is picking up the story. Somebody else is picking up the story, and the same is happening, but there are different accounts to it. It's the same thing that happens every day in our lives. Every day in our lives. If we see a car accident, and the cops come, and they want to get a, a description, we're going to give a slightly different description. We'll maybe say a red car, and somebody will just say a car. Which one is it? It's both. So when you read the account, as you're reading the account, you say, whoa, 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 wait a minute, Peter denies Jesus in one account, And it's a servant girl. And he tells her, I do not know him. Yet in another account, the second denial, he says, man or mister, I don't know him. Which one is it? It's both. There's a fire going on. There's men gathered. The question that was offered to Peter, do you know him? Everyone joined in. You may give account of what the woman said. I may give account of what the man said. It's the same account. There's no contradiction in Scripture. In fact, to me, for me anyway... That gives validity to the story. It was exactly the same thing, and six people saw the same thing, they said the exact same words, I'd say, ah, something's not right here. So as you read the gospel account, you know that, going into it. It's both. It clears it right up. Also, while we're on the subject, I might as well tell you this as well. When you read, and you're reading, the, you're reading the gospel accounts of the story, and I hope you are, again, for the Passion Week, and you read that Jesus was brought to the courtyard of Caiaphas, and then you turn, and it says the courtyard of Annas. You're like, oh, wait a minute, which one? Both. There was one courtyard. There were several priests, an apartments if you want to call them, that lived in this one courtyard where they would work and serve at the temple, near the temple area. It's both. Oh, well, which one is, you know, it can't be right because one says, no, no, both. He was brought into the courtyard where Annas lives and Caiaphas lives. It's really that simple. I I just bring that up because I want you to know that. There's no contradiction in Scripture. You got the true eyewitness account of what happened that final week. Okay, that was for free. John 18, verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. Now, the other disciple is John who wrote this account. Now, we don't know how he got to know the, the high priest. He was a man who had, a, his father had a business, several employees, maybe there was some connection with the, with the temple, we don't know. One commentator, I think he goes a little bit on a limb, he said maybe John's family had a priestly line. It's possible, I don't know. But John, somehow, his family is connected with the high priest enough to know that he was able to go to the girl that was outside the courtyard door and say, where's, you know, where's P- hey Peter, uh, he's with me. He's with me. Let him in. So John vouches for Peter. Peter comes walking into the courtyard of Caiaphas and uh, Annas, this this priestly courtyard, and he walks in. I think that's why verse 17, a servant girl at the door said to Peter, who just came in with John, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? Now, this is the guy that just cut the dude's ear off. I'll go anywhere. I'm cutting ears, and I'm I'm taking on everybody. And the girl says, are you with him? He's like, no, not me. It wasn't me. I, I don't know what you're talking about. Verse 18, now the servants and the officers made a charcoal fire because it was cold. Jerusalem about 2,500 feet above sea level. It's spring, it's cold at night. It's the middle of the night. They were standing and warming themselves. Peter also with them, standing and warming himself. Now, I did this with the first service too. Let's talk first some nice things about Peter. Okay, some some nice things about Peter Because Peter really blows it But let's talk about a couple of nice things Let's say that Peter showed some bravery And some courage in the things of God, right? Although I don't know why he would pull a small dagger out And attack a man who had about 600 people behind him I don't know But at least he had some guts I'll give him that At this point, everyone's gone but John and Peter At least Peter was around to see what was going on He was around at least to deny the Lord Everybody else was gone Peter was the one, if you remember this story, the wind is blowing against the boat, man. It's, it's crated in the middle of the sea. They don't know if they're going to live or die. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes walking on the water. And who says, I'll go out there? If it's you, Lord, call me out. That took some guts. I wouldn't, be call, I wouldn't be like, I'll step out of the boat. So he has some guts. I also think Peter is sincere. Would you agree? I think he's sincere. You know, Jesus tells him, look, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to have this mock trial. I'm going to be handed over and crucified. And Peter's like, I'll go with you. Anywhere you go, I'll go. I'll even die for you. I think he was sincere. I'll, I'll give him that. Remember, it was Peter also that was revealed that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus, I also believe, and you, you can talk about this in a community group if you want. I also believe not only was sincere, not only showed some courage, and bravery. I also think that he loved Jesus. I think Peter loved Jesus. I think Peter stuck his foot in his mouth. I think there's a lot of things we can talk about Peter. But I do believe he loved Jesus. In fact, when, he, when, when Jesus told him about the suffering he will, he will go through, I think it was out of love. It was out of love that Peter's like, no, you're not going to do that. That's not going to happen to you. I think he loved him. Peter was afraid but when he went into the courtyard anyway, Peter was rambunctious, yes, but he wanted to defend his master. Peter stuck his foot in his mouth often, but he did love the Lord Jesus Christ. But well, We can't leave the story there, though. This narrative is very stark and, and a, a huge contrast. Jesus loved Peter. Peter loved Jesus, but Peter, we know, even though he was bold and even though he, 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 he was uh, uh, courageous, his courage had gone, his bravery was gone, and he denied the Lord three times. You know, when, 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 Jesus was, when, excuse me, when Peter was with Jesus, he seemed to be bold and confident. As soon as Jesus was taken, Peter just falls apart. And I think the point in that is, and what I want to take away is, is in, we can be, like Peter, overly self-confident. And find ourselves in hot water. Don't raise your hand. But how many of us who ever been a little overconfident and find ourselves out there on a limb going, how did I get out here? I am not ready for this. You know, boasting of our own abilities is an invitation to disaster. And that's what Peter had to discover. He was finding and looking for strength from within. And he had to take a hard look at himself. I think he was just go, go, go. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us this. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. That's right. Take heed lest he fall. Overconfidence and presumption and falling into sin will cause us to lose our usefulness and power to live and present the gospel. Peter, we have talked about this, and Peter, he kept saying, you're gonna go into the world, I want you to be my witness. Peter had an opportunity to, To be a witness for Christ. Are you with him? Yes. That's the Lord. He's the king. He's the ruler. He's the substitute. He had an opportunity to be that witness. But he was self-confident. And he blew it. And ask yourself, where is Peter? It says it in verse 25 and, let's see, verse 25. And courtyard. Let's see, where else? Oh yeah, verse 18. He was warming himself. In verse 25, same thing, warming himself. So Peter is, by the charcoal fire, warming himself. Do you think maybe that John is trying to tell us something? That maybe that Peter is enjoying the warmth of the world around the soldiers and other people that were part of this conspiracy going on to crucify Christ? Could it be that just as Jesus prayed that we ought to be separated from the world and not part of the world, yet sent into the world to engage the world For the gospel and Peter failed. Warming himself by the fire. Have you ever been warming yourself by the fire? And you know the Lord wants you to speak. But don't raise your hand. All of us, huh? Whether it's work, neighbors, school, work, friends. Find ourselves like Peter. Warming ourselves and not opening our mouths. We'd rather be quiet. John goes back, in verse 19, to the high priest. Verse 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Tell me about your disciples. Tell me about your teaching. There had been a huge crowd. This is Friday, or this is Thursday night, Friday morning, it's into the morning, Earlier that week on Sunday, if you remember, Jesus is entering into Jerusalem and crowds upon crowds upon crowds are meeting him on his way into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry. And the palm branches are being waved and and the coats are being put on the floor and they're shouting Psalm 118, the Hillel, uh, Hosanna to the Son of David, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're like, How many disciples do you have? The second question is about theology. How many disciples, and and what's this teaching that you're teaching people? What was the main concern of the religious leaders, and it's what got Christ crucified? What was the major concern about his teaching? That he is the son of God, son of, of the same nature as God. You make yourself out to be equal with God, they pick up stones to kill him. They want to know. Verse 20, Jesus said, I've spoken openly to you. You're asking me these questions. I've taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. What you need to know is not Jesus not being snarky to the high priest. The high priest was failing miserably to uphold the law. Annas was conducting this preliminary hearing, asking these series of questions when the law makes it very clear you don't question the accused, you go get the witnesses first. We have the Fifth Amendment, right? I I plead the Fifth. You're not going to self-incriminate you. Well, that's the Jewish law as well. So they're asking Jesus, look, speak for yourself. Speak for yourself. He's like, hey, I'm not speaking for me. You go ask. A lot of people heard me speak. I didn't do nothing in secret. Uh, uh, Why are you asking me? You're, You're violating the law. It's not my responsibility to demonstrate my innocence. It's your responsibility to bring forth the witnesses, collaborate the story, Confirm what's being said, then hear the case. It's Complete backwards. That's why Jesus says those things. It's totally not legit at all. Verse 21, why do you ask me? Ask those who've heard me. They know what I said. You know what's so ironic about this is, if you've been tracking with us, John, over and over throughout this gospel account, the word witness must come up, I don't know how many times, probably a hundred times. Witness this, Jesus, my witness, my witness, the Jewish people, what's the witness? And now all of a sudden, witnesses don't matter. We, we just want him dead. So witnesses, we don't care about witnesses anymore. And then when Jesus says, I've said nothing in secret, everything I've said, I've said out in the open, he doesn't, what, what he was saying to them was, what I've been telling everyone publicly is what I have been saying all along. Yes, I've shared with my disciples things, maybe added to the teaching, explained some of the teaching, but Jesus didn't have this public face or this public message and this private message on the side where only the 12 get to hear it and it's a whole different message. He's saying, I, I, there's nothing in secret. Everything I've said, I've said out loud. Don't, don't, you know, don't, 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 don't ask me, follow the law. Verse 22, when he said these things, though, one of the officers standing by Jesus struck him. I don't want to be that man on a day of judgment. Struck God in the face. Is that how you answer the high priest? Another illegal act. We could spend uh, three sermons on just how illegal this is. I won't. You're welcome. Verse 23, Jesus answered, if what I said is wrong, bear witness. There's the witness again. Bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why you strike me? If I said what's right, why are you striking me? I'm just, let's, let's, let's be fair here. Let's have a fair trial. What I'm saying is perfectly true. God's in control. Look at verse 24. It, Anna's job was to get Jesus to say something, to do something, to, to to trump up charges against Jesus so they can file formally against him before the Sanhedrin of blasphemy, and Annas failed. God's in control. Verse 24, Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. You know, as we read the trial, as we see all the laws of Israel, as we see the corruption of the law, as we see all this going on, and yet you see God in in sovereign control around the brokenness of the system, it just reminds me of Genesis 6. The, The Lord said, he said that he saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Jeremiah 17.9 says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can stand it? We've all been in that place, man. We've all been in that place questioning his authority, questioning who he is, questioning whether we should bow our knee to him. And you know what Jesus does? Even while Peter is sinning against him, he goes to the cross for Peter. Even all the times you have denied Him, even all the times that your corrupted hearts have sinned against God, Jesus goes to the cross and dies for your sins anyway. And then He gives you a new heart. When, when, when he calls you to himself, he gives you a new heart. He gives you a heart that, that is able to trust him. He gives you a heart that is able to love him. He gives you a heart that is able to live for him. That's how good our God is. And finally, look at the final denial of Peter, verse 25. Peter was standing and warming himself. There it is again. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it. He denied it and said, I am not. The Prince of Preachers, a man named Charles Haddon Spurgeon, he wrote this on that verse. He said, Peter was on dangerous ground. When his master was being buffeted, he was trying to make himself comfortable. We read of the high priest servants that they warmed themselves and Peter stood with them and warmed himself. He stood with them and they were rough servants of ill masters. He was in bad company. And he was a man who could not afford to be in bad company, for he was so impulsive and so easily provoked to rash actions. That's me. That's me. Verse 26, one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man, whose ear Peter cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Peter is being questioned while Jesus is being questioned. Soon Jesus will testify to the truth at the cost of his life. Peter, on the, on the other hand, will testify and deny the truth to save his own skin. Now, again, before we judge Peter, let's identify with him. Notice what it says here. Who is the last one to ask Peter, were you with him? It was A relative of the servant of the man's ear he cut off. So I'm sure when something like this, you're the guy with the sword. I was in the garden. My uncle, that ear you cut off, that was my uncle. Or my cousin. It doesn't say who, but they're relatives. Like I saw you out there with that sword in that garden. I was there. You cut my uncle's ear off. Not me. Not me. I, I, I didn't do that completely illegal, violent Crime I committed out in the garden, it wasn't me, right? It must have been somebody else. It It certainly wasn't me. Peter was afraid. Peter found out quickly that he was not prepared to face persecution. As Jesus was being persecuted. Early, Jesus warned them, listen, the world's going to hate you. Be ready. The world will hate you. Know that it's hated me before it hated you. Peter quickly found out that he was not nearly as bold and courageous as he had proclaimed. And in fear, he denied the one who loved him. And right on cue, just what Jesus prophesied in John 13, 38, at once the rooster crowed. Now the other gospel accounts add a little bit. I just want to bring that in real quickly here. Matthew says that Peter began to invoke a curse on himself and swear, I do not know the man. And the rooster crowed. Luke twenty-two sixty-one says, And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. I can only imagine what that look looked like. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. A prophetic fulfillment in a colossal failure. And that's what happens when we fail to reverence God first. When we put too much fear on man, approval of others. When we worry and we think and we focus on what others may say rather than what God would say. Our aim is to please him. Proverbs twenty nine, twenty five, the fear of him excuse me, the fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusted the Lord will be exalted. Peter panicked. He feared man more than God. I mean, this guy could get Peter in a lot of trouble. He, he did take the sword He did cut the man's head. He did violently attack one, one, of the, one of the servants that had come up. Jesus warned, whoever denies me before men, I will deny him before the Father who is in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Very serious words, but listen, I'm thankful this morning. And I want you to be thankful this morning that Peter is completely and totally restored in John 21. He finds forgiveness, he finds repentance, and he finds the Lord, and he's restored. He wept out. He went out and wept bitterly and repented and is restored. Judas went out and hung himself. That's the difference. He found repentance, He found forgiveness in Christ. And although this is the greatest blunder other than Judas. Peter was given grace and forgiveness. This work of grace healed and changed the apostle so much so, so much so that when Nero came in years later, he would say, I belong to Jesus. And they say they crucified him upside down for his faith. There's healing. There's repentance. So if you've denied Christ by your words or your actions, we all have. There is grace for you. For confessing and repenting and trusting in Christ, there is grace. There is love. There is forgiveness. This passage, this very incident with Peter, testifies to the validity of the gospel. You see, the failures of Peter is not meant for us to get some courage. Look at Peter. Don't be a Peter. Or, you know, grab the straps from your boots and, and, and move on. Maybe some of us need some of that courage, but that's not, I don't think, the main part of this story, what it's trying to say. What we need is to see Peter reach deep into the grace and love of God. And in his love and grace, it's called the gospel, he found the courage to press on and use mightily of God. You see, if his failures produced this this pride or coldness, I I failed, I need to be better next time. Or even inferiority, I failed and now I'll never be restored. We would never know love and grace of God that happened to Peter. But the fruit of genuine repentance produced humility and a willingness to come to Jesus as Peter did in John 21. He sought his face, his love and his forgiveness. How does that happen? How does that happen? It happens by recognizing the gospel. But I recognize the gospel. Now, look at look, this last thing I want to say. In chapter 18, verse 12 and 24, there, there's a word that's used twice there. Chapter 18, verse 12 and 24, the word is bound. Jesus was bound, brought to Annas. Jesus was bound and brought to Caiaphas. In the Old Testament, one of the most beautiful pictures of Christ in the Old Testament is when Abraham brought his son Isaac up to the mountain. In Genesis 22, 9, it says that Abraham, when he was about to offer sacrifice, bound him to the altar. Yet God provided a ram. In Psalm 118, which we mentioned a minute ago, it's the Messianic Psalm. It's the Psalm that says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Do you know what it says in the next verse? This Messianic Psalm? It says this. The Lord is God. This is a Messianic. The Lord is God. And he has made his light to shine, that's Christ. Bind the sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You see Abraham, you see this messianic psalm, and what you see here is Jesus the sacrifice, God's lamb being bound and prepared for that final offering of himself. The account of Peter tells us that at times we will fail to testify and witness to the gospel, but it also shows us that there can be healing, forgiveness, and grace. All your past and and future and present sins, failures have been absorbed on the cross when Jesus cried, it is finished. And the courage and boldness you need, you find that at the same place at the cross, you see, the gospel will make us humble. Oh, how much we need is grace. But the gospel also gives us strength. for what, what can man do to me? For what can man do to me? If God is with me, who can be against me? If God is for me, who can be against me? Let's well, not just be your own. Be strong, get some courage. It's dig deep into the grace and mercy and love of God. Where the fear of man is wiped away, and the love and the grace and the mercy of God shines through. I'm a sinner. I've sinned. Look what God had to go through. Look at what I had to go to on the cross to forgive me, and then look at the cross and say, look how much he loves me. What can man do to me? That propels us with humble confidence in the strength that God gives us to love people, And to tell them about Jesus. To live on mission with Christ. That's the bottom line to this story. Peter was healed and used. We all, like Annas and the others who who need forgiveness, have sinned, but Christ died for us anyway. Will you join him on the mission? Declaring the gospel with words and demonstrating it in love. Let us pray. And Father, when we see this story, and, and really the hero is Jesus. The hero is Jesus, and we have all failed at times and places in our lives. But you love us and forgive us and restore us, Lord, for those who seek your face. Father, may we ask that as the band plays, as we sing about needing you, Lord, that you would work in us, Spirit of God, that we may surrender our swords and give ourselves completely to you. Open our mouths, we pray, that in love and words we may tell the world, we may tell the world of your great love for them as you've loved us. Lord, we need you.